One of my favorite people in the entire world is Rebecca Bacow, a dual-boarded perio-orthodontist, killing it in a super competitive market. She's treating airway orthodontics from a very scientific perspective. She's an amazing interdisciplinary orthodontist, and she's a super busy mom, juggling incredible speaking engagements, teaching, and a practice. So if you want to learn a little bit about how to be successful in today's market, or maybe just dip your toe in the pond of airway orthodontics, this is one interview you most certainly do not want to miss. This, this, this is the Orthopreneur Show with Glenn Krieger, talking about the things you never learned in school, like marketing, management, and leadership. Hey there, everybody. So today we have a very special treat. Um, one of my good friends and one of my most respected colleagues, uh, Dr. Rebecca Bacow, uh, is with us today. Hi, Becca. Hi. Do you mind if I call you Becca or should I call you Dr. Bacow? Please, 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 please. I figure you are technically Dr. Rebecca Bacow, uh, but I know you as Becca. And so as you're going to find out over the next bit of time that we spend with Becca, um, she is a wealth of information on so many topics. And so let's start, if you don't mind, give us a little background about you. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background before orthodontics, how we met, where, where you came from, if you don't mind, Becca. Sure. So uh, right out of dental school, I considered applying to grad pros, went through the full two-day grad pros interview process. And right before I found out the results, called a mentor that you and I both share. And my mentor said, you know, I think that you need to go practice for a while. I want to connect you with a friend of mine who's very committed to continuing education. And I think that you would learn a lot from him. And that's when I met you. And I had the honor and privilege of working as your associate in an amazing uh, general dental practice for two years, where you taught me about digital co-diagnosis, the importance of photography, and the importance of teaching the patient to own their own issues, which in turn is an amazing motivator for accepting treatment. And in our very small office with two operatories and two hygiene chairs, we together did some amazing production, did some amazing dentistry, and uh, you taught me how to also be a great practice owner, business owner, um, and, and just how to run a great practice while doing great dentistry. You also showed me that uh, continuing education is incredibly valuable, and the two of us together were probably at different study clubs every single night of the week, and I realized that I really wanted to go back to school. Um, we share another mentor, Ward Smalley, who told me about a program at University of Pennsylvania where they do a combined ortho program in four years. And I thought, if I'm going to go back to school and drop everything, uh, this, that's what I want to do. And I, I did. I dropped everything, moved to Philadelphia, and four years later came out as a board-certified orthodontist and periodontist. And Becca, if I can have you pause for just a second, you've covered so much ground in such a short period of time. First, the honor and privilege was mine. I really got so much more out of our relationship than I can imagine you got out of it because um, when you have somebody with your passion in a practice, it's, it's rejuvenating. It really, you know, I was always driven, but watching you made me start rethinking everything I was doing and I learned so much because of you. And it's such a joy when you have somebody else 
to sort of bounce all your practice life off of. Would you agree with that, that it's just a lot of fun? Oh, it was awesome. It was yeah. a ton of fun. I mean, any difficult situation, we would we'd go to the back um, <laughs> between patients, lunchtime, after work, before work, and we'd just sit there and talk about how to handle different situations. It was, yeah. it was awesome. And, and, but you're one of those, I suspect, in retrospect, looking at it, you really did enjoy restorative dentistry. I mean, you, you, you're a lot like me in the sense that whatever you were doing, you threw yourself into it 100%. And I think that's why we got along, because you were so committed to wanting to be the absolute best restorative dentist. And um, as your story evolves here in this podcast, I think people will begin to understand what a big role that plays in who you are today from looking not only from a case acceptance perspective and all the things that we talked about, um, about how more, much more difficult it is to get people to say yes to a $50,000 restorative case than it is a five or $10,000 ortho case, right? Um, For sure. But I also, I also just want to real quickly pay homage to a name you threw out there who arguably, I don't know if you would agree, is maybe one of the most knowledgeable orthodontists that many orthodontists have never even heard of. Uh, you know, Ward Smalley is a legend, you know, at University of Washington and the Pacific Northwest. Um, Ward was a Navy lab tech who then went back to dental school at the University of Washington. He, um, he did the Perioprost program at the University of Washington and then went back to become an orthodontist. Would you agree with me if I said, Becca, that the Pacific Northwest dental community as a whole would be so much less if Ward had never come on the scene? Oh, Ward has influenced so many orthodontists, periodontists, and prosthodontists, and, and his, he's still teaching today, and his, his legacy is interdisciplinary treatment planning and sequencing. Yeah. And he's, he's an incredible mind. He's the reason I ended up in ortho. Because I, I, you didn't know me at the time, but when I first got to Seattle in the late 90s, um, and I really, you know, before kids, I was just living, eating, breathing, drinking restorative dentistry. Um, Ward would let me come over to his office once or twice a week. And after work, I would sit there and he would do surgical setups. He would do, um, you know, mounting cases, which sounds so simple. But, you know, he would show you how to mount the case in the beginning and how to set them up properly orthodontically for restorative. and you know, when I got through my nephology training, it was Ward who said to me, you know, you really should consider ortho, but it just wasn't the right time in my life. And so I wonder how many people Ward has, has influenced into the ortho world at this point of the game. But um, you've mentioned his name, and I just figured I had to pay tribute to him because he is one of the most giving, uh, best educators, perhaps of our generation, that the overwhelming majority of the contemporary ortho world that may never have heard of. What year did you get out of your perio uh, ortho residency? 2013. Right. Um, you came out of perio ortho, and where did you go from there? Um, after I looked at a few different per practices to purchase in the greater Seattle area, and for various reasons, decided to do a scratch startup. Uh, rented some space from some periodontists to keep my overhead low, and after a year, was doing pretty well but had the opportunity to purchase the historic um, adult ortho practice in downtown Seattle. I, I was lucky to purchase a practice from Dr. John Moore, who has uh, one, of the, one of the best reputations, most highly regarded orthodontists in the area. 
he was amazing. Unbelievable orthodontist. Just uh, just the highest caliber, um, most most highly regarded um, orthodontist in the area. So when when that opportunity came to me, uh, it was one that I I said 100% yes, I would love to purchase uh, your practice and was able to take over. It was a relatively small practice. Um, after I, I, when I was just starting out, I had one one person at the front and two people in the back, and that was it. And was able to grow that practice um, to the point where I had eight assistants or eight eight staff, four in the front, four in the back, um, and then just actually just joined with another orthodontist this past month. So now we have two locations, two practices, two two orthodontists. You're the rule of twos, Becca. Two practices, two orthodontists, two locations, and two kids. So let's go discuss a little bit. You're in this area where you have orthodontists competing with you. What do you attribute your growth to? How did, you know, what's the secret sauce here? What did you do to stand out or to grow your practice? What would you recommend to others to learn from your experience? Well, I think as many successful practices will say, I think delivering great results, great customer service um, are two key components to any successful practice to make sure that your team has bought into your mission and uh, to run on time. These should be, I guess, basics for any practice owner. Um, We have jumped in headfirst into aligners because I my practice is two blocks from Amazon where we have a huge adult component to our practice. So being able to handle these complex cases and even surgical cases with aligners is um, important for our practices going forward, I think. And, um, and then the other component is the interdisciplinary treatment planning. I get a lot of referrals from periodontists and surgeons because they want to place an implant, but there's no room for it to be restored. And so that takes a team to recognize that situation. Um, And then finally, the airway component, which has become a huge part of my practice. Do you think you would be able to be as confident treating interdisciplinary if you'd come straight out of ortho residency? And the corollary to that question is, what do you tell the orthodontists out there who may have come straight out of a residency program, never really did any interdisciplinary care, but see that as a potential way to really grow their practices and maybe have a bigger impact on the broader dental community? Absolutely. Well, I think uh, anyone can get involved in interdisciplinary cases. When we think about setting up a case, we, we all fall back to the same ultimate tenets, the ultimate goals. We want teeth centered in the bony housing with nice gingival scalloping, teeth well interdis- and interdigitated or intercuspated uh, with nice occlusion. And if you can set up that situation, you can place an implant very predictably. You can restore an implant very predictably. So it, as long as we have the same ultimate goals that we would for, a let's say, a 12, 13-year-old as we would for a 50-year-old, it shouldn't be all that different. If there's not enough bone to accommodate the movement of the teeth, we have to either think jaw surgery or can we sometimes do some selective alveolar decortication and bone augmentation which would be SFOT. It, it, I know your background, and it comes so, 
so easily to you at this stage of your career. But if I was a dentist who didn't have any experience in this, where would I go? That's a great question. I think that study clubs in general are great resources. So um, finding great mentors in your area would be a great place to start. Maybe there's a local periodontist who's very tapped into something like a Seattle study club, which um, really fosters interdisciplinary treatment planning. Sphere is an amazing resource because there's a lot of great online content and online videos, as well as courses that you can attend at the Spear facility. Um, I, by no means do I think that Spear is the only place to go, but I will say that it's nice that you have the opportunity to travel with your interdisciplinary team, because then you can be attending courses together and talk about things together. But I think study clubs in general are a great place to start. I agree 100%. Um, let's hit the airway side of it a little bit now because you talked about that as being something that's been very good for your practice. And I know personally from talking to you, the impact that you've made in people's lives and parents and kids has been spectacular. So um, when we talk about airway, right, and orthodontics, or if I may add also sleep disordered breathing, uh, because I know that's a component of everything. What does it mean to you when you say my practice, we do a lot of airway. What does that mean to somebody who might not be doing a lot of it or maybe misunderstands it? Sure. Well, maybe I'll back up and say how I got into it. That'd be great. Um, because everybody tends to think, oh, we're just going to do some expansion. You know, if I do expansion and I do tonsils and adenoids, well, then, you know, I'm doing airway orthodontics. And I know there's so much more to it than that. So thanks for taking a step backwards for us. So in 2013, when I finished my program, Jeff Rouse, who is an amazing prosthodontist who focuses his teaching on airway um, to general dentists. And his end goal is not to make sleep appliances. His end goal is to have general dentists and orthodontists. If any orthodontist is interested in learning, he is an amazing resource and an amazing course to take. Um, but it, his whole focus is on understanding the disease process and understanding how to rehabilitate our patients without the need of ever using a sleep appliance. Because a sleep appliance like a CPAP is a Band-Aid. It's going to help a patient sleep only while they're using that appliance, but it doesn't help a patient breathe better and, and sleep better 24 hours a day. Right. So I sat through his two-day course in 2013, and it, it was like a mind explosion. Um, I sat there and I looked at all of these cases and I thought every one of these adult patients that he's showing are actually orthodontic cases. Every one of them had some sort of skeletal issue, usually a small maxilla, either small in the AP or small in the transverse or both. And I thought there's got to be more to this. And so I, I once again just went down this rabbit hole um, like like in the matrix, right? You take the pill and you yeah. just, you can't go back. And I went head first into the literature and was reading ENT literature, thoracic journals, sleep journals, uh, read everything that came out of Stanford and just started to learn. And once you open your eyes to this, you'll start to learn that some of these issues start very, very young, maybe even starting with breastfeeding, starting with uh, whether or not a baby is tongue-tied or lip-tied. And form and function are very 
much intertwined. And so a baby that's unable to latch or a baby that's unable to breathe with their lips together is going to grow differently than a baby that can latch and a baby that will use their tongue properly. Solid food at an early age is going to influence musculature and breathing patterns. And all of these things lead up to when we see the patient, maybe at seven or eight, maybe earlier, depending on how your practice is oriented. And if they've had a lifetime up to that point of not breathing well, not sleeping well, it's going to change the way that their faces have grown. So imagine now you have a seven-year-old with a tongue tie. The tongue is what influences the growth of the upper jaw. So that child maybe never was able to breastfeed, which meant that they were never obligate nasal breathers during the time that they were breastfeeding, changed the way that the masseter muscles worked. So they might have this sort of long face open bite pattern with a narrow maxilla. They may or may not have a cross bite. They might have an open bite because if you have a tethered tongue, that's going to change the way that the tongue moves and the tongue might come forward. And so when we see them at seven or eight, the mom may or may not tell you that the patient's not sleeping well, not breathing well. Um, as an aside, we have a sleep, a pediatric sleep questionnaire as part of our health history. And if it's scored properly, you can identify patients that potentially have sleep and airway issues. By no means am I a sleep physician. I don't diagnose sleep apnea, but I can help identify issues to parents. Right. Um, so the treatment for that child sitting in your chair with a flaccid musculature, open bite tendency, high angle tendency, um, is to recognize that there's a lot of issues going on all at the same time. So we have to deal with the tongue tie. We have to deal with the tongue function. We have to deal with the inability to breathe through the nose. Um, and we have to start to rehabilitate this patient. It's not just the orthodontist as part of the team anymore. So the way we would potentially treat that patient is um, upper and lower expansion. I always do both because the research shows that the more you upright the lower teeth, the more you can, can expand that upper jaw. Remember, the lower, there's no sutures. You're not expanding the lower jaw. You're just uprighting those lower teeth. But we, we upright uh, lower, expand upper. When we expand, we open up nasal passages, and that helps the patient with their ability to breathe through their nose. And After doctor, the appliances come out, yep. I just want to interrupt for just a moment here, just because there are so many people out there, when we talk about these things online, who think this is hocus pocus, who think that the literature is so flawed. And... You know, they don't know you the way I know you. And you think like a scientist. You look at all the literature. You're a very measured individual. You don't jump on trends. And, you know, as a dual specialist, uh, you've been run through the literature gauntlet more than a couple of times during your training. So what would you respond to people who go, come on, there's no literature here. We're just, you know, we don't need to be treating these kids. This is all just hocus pocus, and we can treat them when they're 12 and 13 and 14, and, and it, it's going to be fine. But this is just a bunch of people trying to make money. I, I, because granted, if you treat airway, you're going to start seeing kids you wouldn't have seen otherwise. You're going to treat kids you might not have treated otherwise. And in as much as we don't want to admit it, your bottom line does better. Um, and so many people think that this is motivated by money. 
uh, for those of us who really love doing it. And so how do you respond to these folks who say the science just isn't there? Well, I can only respond by talking about the literature that I've read. So when we do expansion, maxillary expansion in kids that have airway issues, and the gold standard for an airway issue is the PSG, a polysomnogram, which, which is the technical term for a sleep study. Now I'll back up and say there's some interesting data about sleep studies in kids. Sleep studies in medicine today measure the number of times that a patient drops uh, their oxygen saturation levels drop and they have an apneic event. It's a very useful tool for diagnosing old fat men because that's, that's what medicine can treat. Medicine can treat um, someone with sleep apnea and treat them using a CPAP. There's never been any motivation in the, that I shouldn't say that. Um, the, the sleep community doesn't have a good tool to diagnose sleep disordered breathing issues, whether that's upper airway resistance syndrome or a child that has multiple hypopneas with very little apneic events. If you have a child that goes through a sleep study and it comes back with um, an AHI of one or two, that's how we score sleep studies. That means that they've had one or two apneic events an hour on average. That's a, that's a big red flag for a little kid because that means something's happening in their sleep quality. Something definitely is wrong. Unfortunately, we don't have a way to, we don't have great tools at diagnosing these kids. But so let's, but if we look at the literature and we see that, that there, we, there's one study that had over 300 participants and the only, that all had diagnosed sleep apnea as confirmed on a PSG and they did maxillary expansion and most of the kids converted from mouth breathers to nasal breathers. The AHI dropped to one or lower when it was higher and um, these, these kids did better. Um, in in school, they did better in terms of overall health. Also, tongue posture spontaneously changed, and that and adenoids and tonsils can shrink as well. In some instances, when you do expansion. Um, in another paper, they did a 12-year follow follow-up study. They took kids; their average age was eight. They all had diagnosed sleep apnea, and the intervention was maxillary expansion. Um, they followed these kids. So after the first round of intervention, or average age eight, they expanded them. These kids all dropped to AHI of one or lower. Twelve years later, they followed the same kids. Not only did their AHI stay at one or below, but the skeletal changes remained stable. Nice. So this this is a this is proven in the literature. There's other studies looking at bimaxillary expansion as a tool. And if we, if we look at Stanford, it's, it's one of the most progressive places for pediatric sleep and airway literature and research. And um, Dr. Guimano, who's sort of the grandfather of sleep and airway issues, um, talks a lot about how if these kids at an early age have a, some sort of sleep and airway issue, they're almost always going to have a craniofacial component. What that means is if the if the function is incorrect, the form is going to be incorrect. So if they're not breathing well and they're not using their tongue properly at an early age, they're usually going to manifest by the time we see them with a narrow maxilla. What that means is 
to rehabilitate these children, we have to correct the craniofacial component, which means expansion, but we also have to treat the functional component. And that's a big piece that some orthodontists are gonna miss. What that means is we have to include myofunctional therapy as part of our overall treatment. Myofunctional therapy is um, tongue strengthening, isotonic and isometric strengthening of the soft palate, the tongue, and the perioral musculature. It also helps retrain children to keep their lips together and to breathe through their nose, which is going to have a great impact on the success of our treatment from a sleep perspective, but also as part of our retention protocol. If we can retrain the tongue and help avoid chronic mouth breathing, our results are going to be more stable and the kid's going to be healthier long term. Um, this also means we have to diagnose tethered tongues because it's not the tongue tie that's the problem, it's the inability to use the tongue properly. And so myofunctional therapy is the key. The tongue tie release is the solution to helping these patients do the myofunctional therapy exercises. This is a big misconception in the airway world. Just having a tongue tie release in and of itself will not do much, if anything, for a child or an adult. You have to have the room to move the tongue, which would be expansion, and you have to have the muscular therapy there at the same time. And if, I can, step, if I can step in, Becca, yeah. It, it, what I wanted to throw in there, um, there's a couple of little anecdotes I want to put in there because, again, you're such a wealth of information. And what the people listening or getting from you right now is exactly what I would get from you in our like once a week phone calls, right? When we're able to actually have conversations before we got so busy. And, you know, I, I knew Jeff Rouse, believe it or not, like, you know, Becca, I knew Jeff Rouse before Becca knew Jeff Rouse. Um, and I heard his message. And unlike you, but like a lot of our peers, I listened to him speak for the first time, I think in 2010 or so, maybe 11, about the triad of bruxism, GERD, and um, an airway, and at the Academy of Restorative Dentistry. And I, I dismissed it. I dismissed it as a joke. The, this literature is flawed. Um, there's no truth to this. I don't know what they're talking about. Then when I was in ortho residency, Jeff came and spoke at Panky down in Florida, and he invited me and my entire residency. Anybody who wanted to come, he was gonna buy them pizza and show them the literature. And after I spread the word to all faculty and my peers, um, me and one other person went to visit him. And he gave us two more hours or three hours. And again, um, it was to me, it was like garbage. Oh, this is fake science. And for people who don't know me, I really am a skeptic. I really, I need to be convinced. And then I moved to Dallas and that was 2014. And within like a month of my joining here or coming, there was an airway group lecture at the George Bush Library, and Jeff was running it, and I listened again, and I still didn't listen. And you know this, but if it wasn't for you, Becca, I would never have really gotten into the airway world because here three times I heard Jeff speak, and three times the literature was presented quite clearly, and three times, like many of our peers out there today, I sat there saying, this stuff doesn't make sense. It, it's not something I was taught in ortho residency. Uh, what am I doing with any of this? 
And then you convinced me to dip my toe in the water and start looking at things and being a more, ad, a, a more active observer. And I started doing it. And as much fun as it is to change smiles and to see people thank you for giving them a gorgeous smile, unless there's some sort of real heavy psychosocial issue going on, you're not really changing people's lives. You're enhancing their appearance and they feel good about it. But when you've got a mom come into your office crying because she's at her wit's end because her 10 or 11 year old kid is still wetting the bed and they're grinding their teeth at night and they're waking up in a fight every morning with mom, like angry because they didn't sleep the way they should and they're suffering in school um, and they're suffering in many other ways and you know the literature and you can help this child. To me, that takes what we do to the absolute next level. And if people out there want to believe that the literature um, doesn't support it, I can't fight with them because I was that guy. What I can say is, as a reformed skeptic, it has changed my practice in terms of how I can help people. It's changed the way the community interacts with me, both with physicians, ENTs, and the moms, because they hear about this. And of course, you know, the last reason, which was not the reason I did it, it becomes a differentiator for your practice. And again, this is just a very roundabout way of saying thank you, Becca, because if it wasn't for you, um, I don't think I would have ever opened my eyes to it. And, I, and, and that's why I'm such a passionate advocate for this now. Um, and for everybody out there, uh, there's a reason why the Orthopreneur Summit in September is half business and half airway. And we are lucky enough to have Dr. Rebecca Bachow here as uh, our first speaker on the docket to sort of introduce this topic to everybody so that we can understand why we're doing what we're doing and the way we can make changes in our patients' lives. So um, as you know, the other people we've got are also Stanford, you know, Stan Liu, and we've got Audrey Yoon, who's the orthodontist with the group. Uh, we, I, I know you've got me, JT Thomas uh, is coming because of you. Uh, and he's got a fantastic story about phrenectomies and, and how he helps little kids. And so uh, I, I just want to take a moment and say thank you, Becca, for sort of opening my eyes to this bigger issue. Like you said, you almost have to see it to believe it and you have to live it and you have to see it happening in your patients. And, and I, would, I would even add, you know, you, you, your example was a 10-year-old. If we can catch these kids even earlier, we have such a bigger impact on their lives. Because imagine if you, instead of catching them at 10, what if you catch them at five or six? And now all of a sudden they're sleeping better. Their cognitive growth yep. is so much better for those five or six years. Yep. Um, it's, I would say if you, if you were to ask me what's the biggest challenge in my practice, from a patient care perspective, it's what the heck do we do with the four-year-olds and the three-year-olds who come to my pra our practices and, and the parents say, we, we have a diagnosed sleep issue. You look, they have a craniofacial issue, but we all know that's, that's, not, a, that's not the easiest patient to treat in our chairs. Nope. I don't know that we have a great answer for that, but um, at least what I do right now is help the families find the right professionals. We refer to ENT. We refer for malfunctional therapy. Um, when appropriate, tongue-tie release. And um, we work with the families trying to find the proper intervention to help the kiddos sleep better. Yeah. Um, but that is, to me, the perfect indication for the myobrace-like 
devices, right? Where, where I'm just not able to get into this uh, child's mouth and, and do a, you know, an expander or, you know, if a pediatric dentist is involved and they want to do it wonderful, but in my practice, I can't treat a three or four year old with an expander, even a removable one, but to give them something to sleep with, to get them used to it. You know, that's sort of where I start. And I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, no, I think that, and, and I'm learning from Audrey Yoon that there's maybe some easier products. Mild brace is pretty bulky. It is. Um, I, I tend to give them away at cost and just have the exactly. families try it. Exactly. Um, and that a big part of that's because I know that that same kiddo is going to need comprehensive care with me exactly. um, as soon as I can, maybe five, six, uh, seven for sure. Um, trying to get in there, trying to expand, trying to create room for the tongue, trying to help with airway. Um, and I don't want to burn out this poor kiddo. Yeah. But, but at, also when at, you, at three or four. When you, when you give that device to mom or dad, you see their eyes just light up, right? It's like, I'm going to give you this little device at cost, whatever it is, 40 or $70, whatever the number is. I don't make a penny on it just like you. Uh, and I may have learned that from you, frankly. Um, but you, you, like, they have no answers sometimes. They don't know what to do. And by just being a caring, loving advocate, it often goes so far. Forget the practice management side of it. It just... Right. I don't know. I'm sure you see it with those moms or dads. They just they sort of light up that someone's actually caring about something like this that they're struggling with. And the weirdest, the weirdest part about it, which I think if you're not involved in it and I started seeing it when you opened my eyes, but you see these kids at eight, nine and you're asking the question. So is there any nighttime bedwetting? Is there any sleepwalking? Is there any you know, uh, any number of things we could talk about with the covers being thrashed about. Are they sleeping on their stomach with their mouth open and their head tipped back? Are they grinding their teeth, right? Um, you know, night terrors, any number of things we can add. And the mom will, or dad will invariably say what, right? Not this one, but her little sister who's three, you know, you're describing her to a T. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the nine-year-old in front of you, who may not need any ortho, is fine, but all of a sudden you're finding out that these three and four and five year old siblings are in distress. And you know, we're never gonna recommend straightening teeth at age four or five just to straighten teeth. But if we can jump on this early and change these kids' lives, that's sort of the gift that you've taught me to give to my patients. So thank you for that. Yeah, for sure. Well, we get it a lot with, um, we do a lot of surgical cases in our practice. We have a, a pretty large adult surgical component to our practice and it's these parents who then bring in their kids and say well you've now uh, I now understand why my maxilla or mandible whatever is small maybe you should look at my kiddo right and then um, dad and then you hear it about dad right and then mom will say right oh, and then we get the cousins yeah and, then right yeah, exactly. and, and uncles you know her, her um, dad really needs to come see you because he's got such a narrow palate and man does he snore and you know, and, exactly. and I don't, did I ever tell you, but I once lost a patient to sleep apnea. I think so. Yeah. How tragic. Yeah. He was, it was weird because I was doing a lot of sedation dentistry because, you know, you're doing big cases and people are nervous. And so, you know, you use an oral sedation, something simple, a benzodiazepine, which is remarkably safe, but I would always have a pulse oximeter on them. Right. And I remember one guy about 35 years old. Um, I was treating him for a single crown. 
and he would sort of doze in and out and I'd watch his, his O2 saturation. And he, he, every time he would sort of fall asleep, if you will, I'd watch his oxygen drop from like 95, 96. It would all of a sudden go to like 91, 90, the machine would start beeping. And then, you know, the oxygen saturation curve would drop off. And all of a sudden he's in the mid eighties and I'd shake him vigorously and get him awake. And I remember telling him at his crown seat appointment, which he was not sedated for, you know, dude, I think you have sleep apnea. Like, I didn't know what it was, you know, it was like, what, close to 15 years ago. And I didn't know what it was. And I was like, uh, you know, you should probably go see a doctor, I think, um, to get this checked out. And I saw his wife for a cleaning about a month later. And I asked her how he was doing to get to a doctor. And he had passed in his sleep um, between the time I had seen him and the time I saw his wife. Uh, unexplained, of course. And, and he was in his 30s. And he just got married within a year. And I'll never forget mm. that. And so when, you know, even, even I, with that history, I ignored all the stuff that Jeff taught me. So, you know, I, I just beg everybody listening. This is not a joke. This is not um, hocus pocus. There are fringe elements, which I don't necessarily agree with uh, in the airway world. But mainstream literature out of Stanford and other places is legitimate. And one can choose to ignore it. But it's legitimate science, as legitimate as anything I've ever seen in orthodontics. And so thank you so much for bringing that to light. And I'm, I know we're all looking forward to seeing you speak and interact with you at the summit in September. Um, and before I let you go, uh, I have two more things I want to hit you with. One, um, I have to ask, because you are superhuman. Uh, I, like I said, you have a couple of young kids. Uh, you've got a couple of pretty young practices. Uh, you teach at Spear, you travel the world lecturing, uh, you are an amazing uh, spouse um, to a, an amazing guy who I, who I really adore. He's a great guy. Um, how do you do it? Like, where do you sleep? <laughs> when do you sleep? Are you exhausted all the time? And what advice would you give to, you know, moms and dads out there who are, you know, they got one practice, they're not lecturers, they're not teaching, uh, they don't have multiple locations. And they're saying, man, I don't know how I'm going to do it. What do you tell them? Well, I couldn't do any of this without my husband. So huge, huge thanks to, to Dave, my husband, who makes this all happen, who is there with the kids to take them to school and make them breakfast in the morning. And they're at home when, when I'm off doing other things. And he's, he has a full-time job as well. So family is a huge help. And, and you just, you just do it, right? You're doing the same kind of thing when you've got more than one practice. You have 10 million things always going at the same time. And um, we all just follow our passion. We do, we do what we love and we do it because we love it. I've got two little girls at home and I hope that, that they feel empowered to, to follow their dreams one day and to know that, that they, they can do whatever they put their hearts to. Um, yeah, uh, we we all can. So you you just you just go with it. And uh, there's tough days and there's easy days. And um, I try to to enjoy all the little things and and laugh when it's funny and um, don't take things too seriously when when uh, when there's a toddler meltdown or the baby's crying. You just <laughs> You just love the little things. That's, that's how we live our life. I agree. I, and I'll add, can I add one more thing? Because um, as the son of a working mom, 
You know, everybody, every woman in my family growing up had a job of some sort, right, or a profession. And, you know, I, I was always in awe of my mom. I went back to law school when I was 10 years old. And, you know, I tried to cook my own dinners. But if I was sick, I went to school with mom. Um, and I've always been sort of in awe of, of working moms who are able to hold it all together because, frankly, let's be honest, their life is a lot more difficult than most of us men because women tend to be the primary caregivers in most homes. Before you go, before you go, I just, this is the last series of questions I'm going to ask. And Inside the Actor Studio with James Lipton was one of the most iconic interview shows ever created. And at the end, James Lipton, who would, who would run it, would ask 10 questions that he borrowed from Bernard Pivot, um, his interview show from years earlier. So I'm going to ask you 10 questions. Whatever comes into your mind, just say it, and I will not judge you in any way. But these are the exact same questions James Lipton used to ask, and I love them. So here you go. You ready? Okay. What, what is your favorite word? Hello. <laughs> what is your least favorite word? <laughs> no. <laughs> you hear a lot of that these days, don't you? Um, it can happen. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, something with passion. Someone else with passion. And what turns you off? Apathy. Nice. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word? Yeah, your favorite curse I, word. I think we all have I one. I don't really curse. Well, you don't. Have you ever heard me curse? I've never heard. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. Well, it could be gosh my darn. My staff me. Aw shucks. <laughs> golly, golly, golly whiz. But um, I, yeah, I've, I've known you a long I, time. I've never heard I, I think, yeah, I guess I try to come up with funny ways to, creative ways to, to express my anger, but I can't think of anything right now. Let's go on to your next one, which is what sound or noise do you love? Uh, laughter. What sound or noise do you hate? One of my kids crying. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Maybe exercise physiology. Ooh, didn't see my, that. You know my 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 passion when I'm not with my kiddos or trying to run the practice is long distance endurance sports. Yes. So, what profession would you not like to do? Garbage collecting. Fair enough. And here's a final question: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Looks like you had a fulfilling life. Nice. I want to thank you, Becca, from the bottom of my heart for being here today to allow me to have this great time with you. I know that uh, you're just such a wealth of information and such a blessing to our profession. I can't wait to hear you speak. Um, anybody out there who's listening to you is in for a real treat if they come to the meeting. Um, so thank you again for your time. I know you've got a baby to get to, so I'm going to let you run. But uh, wishing you an amazing 2019. And, uh, and to everybody else out there, if you ever have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I will certainly pass them on to Becca. And just wishing everybody an amazing 2019. So with that, Becca, thank you so thank much. And, uh, and thank you. Oh, please. The pleasure has been all mine. Until we meet again, folks, have a wonderful day.